Tommy looked rather gingerly at the packet that Tuppence thrust upon him. Is this it? Yes, be careful. Don't get it over you. Tommy took a delicate sniff at the packet and replied with energy, No, indeed, what is this frightful stuff? Asavadita, replied Tuppence. A pinch of that, and you will wonder why your boyfriend is no longer attentive, as the advertisements say. Shades of B.O., murmured Tommy. Shortly after that, various incidents occurred. The first was the smell in Mr. Meadows' room. Mr. Meadows, not a complaining man by nature, spoke about it mildly at first, then with increasing firmness. Mrs. Perenna was summoned into conclave. With all the will to resist in the world, she had to admit that there was a smell, a pronounced unpleasant smell. Perhaps, she suggested, the gas tap of the fire was leaking. Bending down and sniffing dubiously, Tommy remarked that he did not think the smell came from there, nor from under the floor. He himself thought definitely a dead rat. Mrs. Perenna admitted that she had heard of such things, but she was sure there were no rats at Sanssouci, perhaps a mouse, though she herself had never seen a mouse. Mr. Meadows said with firmness that he thought the smell indicated at least a rat, and he added still more firmly that he was not going to sleep another night in the room until the matter had been seen to. He would ask Mrs. Perenna to change his room. Mrs. Perenna said, Of course, she had just been about to suggest the same thing. She was afraid that the only room vacant was a rather small one, and unfortunately it had no sea view. But if Mr. Meadows did not mind that, Mr. Meadows did not. His only wish was to get away from the smell. Mrs. Perenna thereupon accompanied him to a small bedroom, the door of which happened to be just opposite the door of Mrs. Blenkinsop's room, and summoned the adenoidal, semi-idiotic Beatrice to move Mr. Meadows' things. She would, she explained, send for a man to take up the floor and search for the origin of the smell. Matters were settled satisfactorily on this basis. The second incident was Mr. Meadows' hay fever. That was what he called it at first. Later, he admitted doubtfully that he might possibly have caught cold. He sneezed a good deal, and his eyes ran. If there was a faint elusive suggestion of raw onion floating in the breeze in the vicinity of Mr. Meadows' large silk handkerchief, nobody noticed the fact, and indeed a pungent amount of eau de cologne masked the more penetrating odour. Finally, defeated by incessant sneezing and nose-blowing, Mr. Meadows retired to bed for the day. It was on the morning of that day that Mrs. Blenkinsop received a letter from her son Douglas. So excited and thrilled was Mrs. Blenkinsop that everybody at Sanssouci heard about it. The letter had not been censored at all, she explained, because fortunately one of Douglas's friends coming on leave had brought it, so for once Douglas had been able to write quite fully. And it just shows, declared Mrs. Blenkinsop, wagging her head sagely, how little we know really of what is going on. After breakfast, she went upstairs to her room, opened the japanned box, and put the letter away. Between the folded pages were some unnoticeable grains of rice powder. She closed the box again, pressing her fingers firmly on its surface. As she left her room, she coughed, and from opposite came the sound of a highly histrionic sneeze. Tuppence smiled and proceeded downstairs. She had already made known her intention of going up to London for the day to see her lawyer on some business and do a little shopping. Now she was given a good send-off by the assembled boarders and entrusted with various commissions. Only if you have time, of course. Major Bletchley held himself aloof from this female chatter. He was reading his paper and uttering appropriate comments aloud. 
damned swines of Germans, machine-gunning civilian refugees on the roads. Damn brutes! If I were our people— Tuppence left him, still outlining what he would do if he were in charge of operations. She made a detour through the garden to ask Betty Sprott what she would like as a present from London. Betty, ecstatically clasping a snail in two hot hands, gurgled appreciatively. In response to Tuppence's suggestions, a pussy, a picture book, some coloured chalks to draw with, Betty decided, Betty Trois. So the coloured chalks were noted down on Tuppence's list. As she passed on, meaning to rejoin the drive by the path at the end of the garden, she came unexpectedly upon Karl von Dynim. He was standing, leaning on the wall. His hands were clenched, and as Tuppence approached, he turned on her, his usually impassive face convulsed with emotion. Tuppence paused involuntarily and asked, Is anything the matter? Ah, yes, everything is the matter. His voice was hoarse and unnatural. You have a saying here that a thing is neither fish, flesh, nor fowl, nor good red herring, have you not? Tuppence nodded. Carl went on bitterly. That is what I am. It cannot go on. That is what I say. It cannot go on. It would be best, I think, to end everything. What do you mean? The young man said. You have spoken kindly to me. You would, I think, understand. I fled from my own country because of injustice and cruelty. I came here to find freedom. I hated Nazi Germany, but alas, I am still a German. Nothing can alter that. Tuppence murmured. You may have difficulties, I know. It's not that. I am a German, I tell you. In my heart, in my feeling, Germany is still my country. When I read of German cities bombed, of German soldiers dying, of German aeroplanes brought down, they are my people who die. When that old fire-eating major reads out from his paper, when he says, those swine... I move to fury, I cannot bear it. He added quietly, And so, I think it would be best, perhaps, to end it all. Yes, to end it. Tuppence took hold of him firmly by the arm. Nonsense, she said robustly. Of course you feel as you do, anyone would, but you've got to stick it. I wish they would intern me. It would be easier so. Oh, yes, it probably would, but in the meantime you're doing useful work or so I've heard, useful not only to England but to humanity. You're working on decontamination problems, aren't you? His face lit up slightly. Ah, yes, and I begin to have much success. A process very simple, easily made and not complicated to apply. Well, said Tuppence, that's worth doing. Anything that mitigates suffering is worthwhile, and anything that's constructive and not destructive. Naturally, we've got to call the other side names— they're doing just the same in Germany. Hundreds of major Bletchleys foaming at the mouth. I hate the Germans myself. The Germans, I say, and feel waves of loathing. But when I think of individual Germans, mothers sitting anxiously waiting for the news of their sons, and boys leaving home to fight, and peasants getting in the harvests, and little shopkeepers, and some of the nice, kindly German people I know, I feel quite different. I know, then, that they're just human beings, and that we're all feeling alike. That's the real thing. The other is just the war mask that you put on. It's a part of war, probably a necessary part, but it's ephemeral. As she spoke, she thought, as Tommy had done not long before, of Nurse Cavill's words, Patriotism is not enough. I must have no hatred in my heart. That saying, of a most truly patriotic woman, had always seemed to them both the high watermark of sacrifice. Karl von Dynam, 
took her hand and kissed it. He said, I thank you. What you say is good and true. I will have more fortitude. Oh dear, thought Tuppence, as she walked down the road into the town. How very unfortunate that the person I like best in this place should be a German. It makes everything cock-eyed. Tuppence was nothing if not thorough. Although she had no wish to go to London, she judged it wise to do exactly as she had said she was going to do. If she merely made an excursion somewhere for the day, somebody might see her, and the fact would get round to Sans Souci. No, Mrs. Blenkinsop had said she was going to London, and to London she must go. She purchased a third return and was just leaving the booking office window when she ran into Sheila Perenna. Hello, said Sheila. Where are you off to? I just came to see about a parcel which seems to have gone astray. Tuppence explained her plans. Oh, yes, of course, said Sheila carelessly. I do remember you saying something about it, but I hadn't realized it was today you were going. I'll come and see you into the train. Sheila was more animated than usual. She looked neither bad-tempered nor sulky. She chatted quite amiably about small details of daily life at Sans Souci. She remained talking to Tuppence until the train left the station. After waving from the window and watching the girl's figure recede, Tuppence sat down in her corner seat again and gave herself up to serious meditation. Was it, she wondered, an accident that Sheila had happened to be at the station just at that time? Or was it a proof of enemy thoroughness? Did Mrs. Perenna want to make quite sure that the garrulous Mrs. Blenkinsop really had gone to London? It looked very much like it. It was not until the next day that Tuppence was able to have a conference with Tommy. They had agreed never to attempt to communicate with each other under the roof of Sans Souci. Mrs. Blenkinsop met Mr. Meadows as the latter, his hay fever somewhat abated, was taking a gentle stroll on the front. They sat down on one of the promenade seats. Well, said Tuppence. Slowly, Tommy nodded his head. He looked rather unhappy. Yes, he said. I got something. But, Lord, what a day. Perpetually, with an eye to the crack of the door. I've got quite a stiff neck. Never mind your neck, said Tuppence unfeelingly. Tell me. Well, the maids went in to do the bed in the room, of course, and Mrs. Perenna went in. But that was when the maids were there, and she was just blowing them up about something and the kid ran in once and came out with a woolly dog. Yes, yes, anyone else? One person, said Tommy slowly. Who? Carl von Dynam. Oh. Tuppence felt a swift pang. So after all... When? she asked. Lunchtime. He came out from the dining room early, came up to his room, then sneaked across the passage and into yours. He was there about a quarter of an hour. He paused. That settles it, I think. Tuppence nodded. Yes, it settled it all right. Carl von Dynam could have had no reason for going into Mrs. Blenkinsop's bedroom and remaining there for a quarter of an hour save one. His complicity was proved. He must be, Tuppence thought, a marvellous actor. His words to her that morning had rung so very true. Well, perhaps they had been true in a way. To know when to use the truth was the essence of successful deception. Carl von Dynam was a patriot, all right. He was an enemy agent working for his country. One could respect him for that. Yes, but destroy him too. I'm sorry, 
she said slowly. So am I, said Tommy. He's a good chap. Tuppence said, You and I might be doing the same thing in Germany. Tommy nodded. Tuppence went on. Well, we know more or less where we are. Carl von Dynam working in with Sheila and her mother. Probably Mrs. Perenna is the big noise. Then there's that foreign woman who was talking to Carl yesterday. She's in it somehow. What do we do now? We must go through Mrs. Perenna's room sometime. There might be something there that would give us a hint, and we must tail her, see where she goes and whom she meets. Tommy, let's get Albert down here. Tommy considered the point. Many years ago, Albert, a page boy in a hotel, had joined forces with the young Beresfords and shared their adventures. Afterwards, he had entered their service and been the sole domestic prop of the establishment. Some six years ago, he had married and was now the proud proprietor of the Duck and Dog pub in South London. Tuppence continued rapidly. Albert will be thrilled. We'll get him down here. He can stay at the pub near the station, and he can shadow the Perennis for us, or anyone else. And what about Mrs. Albert? Well, she was going to her mother in Wales with the children last Monday, because of air raids. It all fits in perfectly. Yes, that's a good idea, Tuppence. Either of us following the woman about would be rather conspicuous. Albert would be perfect. Now, another thing. I think we ought to watch out for that so-called Polish woman who was talking to Carl and hanging about here. It seems to me that she probably represents the other end of the business. And that's what we're anxious to find. Oh, yes, I do agree. She comes here for orders or to take messages. Next time we see her, one of us must follow her and find out more about her. What about looking through Mrs. Perenna's room? And Carl's too, I suppose. I don't suppose you'll find anything in his. After all, as a German, the police are liable to search it, and so he'd be careful not to have anything suspicious. The Perenna is going to be difficult. When she's out of the house, Sheila is often there, and there's Betty and Mrs. Sprott running about all over the landings, and Mrs. O'Rourke spends a lot of time in her bedroom. She paused. Lunchtime is best. Master Carl's time? Exactly. I could have a headache and go to my room. No, someone might come up and want to minister to me. I know. I'll just come in quietly before lunch and go out to my room without telling anyone. Then after lunch I can say I had a headache. Well, hadn't I better do it? My hay fever could recrudesce tomorrow. I think it had better be me. If I'm caught, I could always say I was looking for aspirin or something. One of the gentlemen boarders in Mrs. Perenna's room would cause far more speculation. Tommy grinned of a scandalous character. Then the smile died. He looked grave and anxious. As soon as we can, old thing. The news is bad today. We must get on to something soon. Tommy continued his walk, and presently entered the post office, where he put through a call to Mr. Grant, and reported the recent operation was successful, and our friend C is definitely involved. Then he wrote a letter and posted it. It was addressed to Mr. Albert Batt, the duck and dog, Glamorgan Street, Kennington. Then he bought himself a weekly paper, which professed to inform the English world of what was really going to happen, and strolled innocently back in the direction of Sanssouci. Presently he was hailed by the hearty voice of Commander Haydock, leaning from his two-seater car and shouting, Hello, Meadows. Want a lift? Tommy accepted the lift gratefully and got in. So you read that rag, do you? demanded Haydock, glancing at the scarlet cover of the Inside Weekly News. 
Mr. Meadows displayed the slight confusion of all readers of the periodical in question when challenged. <laughs> Awful rag, he agreed, but sometimes, you know, they really do seem to know what's going on behind the scenes. And sometimes they're wrong. Oh, quite so. Truth of it is, said Commander Haydock, steering rather erratically round a one-way island and narrowly missing collision with a large van, when the Megas are right, one remembers it. When they're wrong, you forget it. Do you think there's any truth in this rumour about Stalin having approached us? Wishful thinking, my boy, wishful thinking, said Commander Haydock. The Ruskies are as crooked as hell and always have been. Don't trust him, that's what I say. Here you've been a bit under the weather. Oh, just a touch of hay fever. I get it about this time of year. Yes, of course. Never suffered from it myself, but I had a pal who did. Used to lay him out regularly every June. Feeling fit enough for a game of golf? Tommy said he'd like it very much. Right, what about tomorrow? I'll tell you what. I've got to go to a meeting about this parachute business, raising a corps of local volunteers. Jolly good idea, if you ask me. Time we were all made to pull our weight. Shall we have a round at about six? Thanks very much, I'd like to. Good, that's settled. The commander drew up abruptly at the gate of Sanssouci. How's the fair Sheila? he asked. Oh, quite well, I think. I haven't seen much of her. Haydock gave his loud, barking laugh. Not as much as you'd like to, I bet. <laughs> Good-looking girl, that, but damned rude. She sees too much of that German fellow. Damned unpatriotic, I call it. Dare say she's got no use for old fogies like you and me, but there are plenty of nice lads going about in our own services. Why take up with a bloody German? That sort of thing riles me. Mr. Meadows said, I'll Be careful, he's just coming up the hill behind us. Don't care if he does here, rather hope he does. I'd like to kick Master Karl's behind for him. Any decent German's fighting for his country, not slinking over here to get out of it. Well, said Tommy, it's one less German to invade England at all events. Oh, you mean he's here already? <laughs> Rather good, Meadows. Not that I believe this Tommy right about invasion. We never have been invaded and never will be. We've got a navy, thank God. With which patriotic announcement? The commander let in his clutch with a jerk and the car leapt forward up the hill to Smuggler's Rest. Tuppence arrived at the gates of Sanssouci at twenty minutes to two. She turned off from the drive and went through the garden and into the house through the open drawing-room window. A smell of Irish stew and the clatter of plates and murmur of voices came from afar. Sanssouci was hard at work on its midday meal. Tuppence waited by the drawing-room door until Martha, the maid, had passed across the hall and into the dining-room. Then she ran quickly up the stairs, shoeless. She went into her room, put on her soft felt bedroom slippers, and then went along the landing and into Mrs. Perenna's room. Once inside, she looked round her and felt a certain distaste sweep over her. Not a nice job, this. Quite unpardonable if Mrs. Perenna was simply Mrs. Perenna. Prying into people's private affairs. Tuppence shook herself, an impatient terrier shake that was a reminiscence of her girlhood. There was a war on. She went over to the dressing-table. Quick and deft in her movements, she had soon gone through the contents of the drawers there. In the tall bureau, one of the drawers was locked. That seemed more promising. Tommy had been entrusted with certain tools and had received some brief instruction on the manipulation of them. These indications he had passed on to Tuppence. A deft twist or two of the wrist, and the drawer yielded. There was a cash box containing twenty pounds in notes and some piles of silver. 
also a jewel case, and there were a heap of papers. These last were what interested Tuppence most. Rapidly she went through them. Necessarily it was a cursory glance. She could not afford time for more. Papers relating to a mortgage on Sans Souci, a bank account, letters. Time flew past. Tuppence skimmed through the documents, concentrating furiously on anything that might bear a double meaning. Two letters from a friend in Italy. Rambling, discursive letters, seemingly quite harmless, but possibly not so harmless as they sounded. A letter from one Simon Mortimer of London. A dry, business-like letter containing so little of moment that Tuppence wondered why it had been kept. Was Mr. Mortimer not so harmless as he seemed? At the bottom of the pile, a letter in faded ink signed Pat, and beginning, This will be the last letter I'll be writing to you, Eileen, my darling. No, not that. Tuppence could not bring herself to read that. She refolded it, tidied the letters on top of it, and then, suddenly alert, pushed the drawer to. No time to relock it. And when the door opened and Mrs. Perenna came in, she was searching vaguely amongst the bottles on the washstand. Mrs. Blenkinsop turned a flustered but foolish face towards her hostess. Oh, Mrs. Perenna, do forgive me. I came in with such a blinding headache, and I thought I would lie down on my bed with a little aspirin, and I couldn't find mine, so I thought you wouldn't mind. I know you must have some, because you offered it to Miss Minton the other day. Mrs. Perenna swept into the room. There was a sharpness in her voice as she said, Why, of course, Mrs. Blenkinsop. Why ever didn't you come and ask me? Well, of course, I should have done, really, but I knew you were all at lunch, and I do so hate, you know, (laughs) making a fuss. Passing tuppence, Mrs. Perenna caught up the bottle of aspirin from the washstand. How many would you like? she demanded crisply. Mrs. Blenkinsop accepted three. Escorted by Mrs. Perenna, she crossed to her own room and hastily demurred to the suggestion of a hot water bottle. Mrs. Perenna used her parting shot as she left the room. But you have some aspirin of your own, Mrs. Blenkinsop. I've seen it. Tuppence cried quickly. Oh, I know. I know I've got some somewhere, but so stupid of me. I I simply couldn't lay my hands on it. Mrs. Perenna said with a flash of her big white teeth. Well, have a good rest until tea time. She went out, closing the door behind her. Tuppence drew a deep breath, lying on her bed rigidly lest Mrs. Perenna should return. Had the other suspected anything? Those teeth, so big and so white, the better to eat you with, my dear. Tuppence always thought of that when she noticed those teeth. Mrs. Perenna's hands, too, big, cruel-looking hands. She had appeared to accept Tuppence's presence in her bedroom quite naturally, but later she would find the bureau drawer unlocked. Would she suspect then? Or would she think that she had left it unlocked herself by accident? One did do such things. Had Tuppence been able to replace the papers in such a way that they looked much the same as before? Surely, even if Mrs. Perenna did notice anything amiss, she would be more likely to suspect one of the servants than she would Mrs. Blenkinsop. And if she did suspect the latter, wouldn't it be a mere case of suspecting her of undue curiosity? There were people, Tuppence knew, who did poke and pry— But then, if Mrs. Perenna were the renowned German agent M, she would be suspicious of counter-espionage. Had anything in her bearing revealed undue alertness? She had seemed natural enough, only that one sharply pointed remark about the aspirin. Suddenly, Tuppence sat up on her bed. 
She remembered that her aspirin, together with some iodine and a bottle of soda mints, were at the back of the writing-table drawer where she had shoved them when unpacking. It would seem, therefore, that she was not the only person to snoop in other people's rooms. Mrs. Perenna had got there first. Chapter 7 On the following day, Mrs. Sprott went up to London. A few tentative remarks on her part had led immediately to various offers on the part of the inhabitants of Sans Souci to look after Betty. When Mrs. Sprott, with many final adjurations to Betty, to be a very good girl, had departed, Betty attached herself to Tuppence, who had elected to take morning duty. Play, said Betty. Play, I'd seek. She was talking more easily every day, and had adopted a most fetching habit of laying her head on one side, fixing her interlocutor with a bewitching smile, and murmuring, Peace. Tuppence had intended taking her for a walk, but it was raining hard, so the two of them adjourned to the bedroom, where Betty led the way to the bottom drawer of the bureau, where her playthings were kept. Hide Bonzo, shall we? asked Tuppence, but Betty had changed her mind, and demanded instead, Weed me story. Tuppence pulled out a rather tattered book from one end of the cupboard, to be interrupted by a squeal from Betty. No, no, nasty, bad. Tuppence stared at her in surprise, and then down at the book, which was a coloured version of little Jack Horner. Was Jack a bad boy? she asked, because he pulled out a plum. Betty reiterated with emphasis, Bad! And then with a terrific effort, Dirty! She seized the book from Tuppence and replaced it in the line, then tugged out an identical book from the other end of the shelf, announcing with a beaming smile, Clean! Nice Jack Horner! Tuppence realized that the dirty and worn books had been replaced by new and cleaner editions and was rather amused. Mrs. Sprott was very much what Tuppence thought of as the hygienic mother, always terrified of germs, of impure food, or of the child sucking a soiled toy. Tuppence, brought up in a free and easy rectory life, was always rather contemptuous of exaggerated hygiene, and had brought up her own two children to absorb what she called a reasonable amount of dirt. However, she obediently took out the clean copy of Jack Horner and read it to the child with the comments proper to the occasion, Betty murmuring, That's Jack, plum, in a pie, pointing out these interesting objects with a sticky finger that bade fair to soon consign this second copy to the scrap heap. They proceeded to Goosey Goosey Gander and the old woman who lived in a shoe. And then Betty hid the books, and Tuppence took an amazingly long time to find each of them, to Betty's great glee. And so the morning passed rapidly away. After lunch, Betty had her rest, and it was then that Mrs. O'Rourke invited Tuppence into her room. Mrs. O'Rourke's room was very untidy and smelt strongly of peppermint and stale cake, with a faint odour of mothballs added. There were photographs on every table of Mrs. O'Rourke's children and grandchildren and nieces and nephews and great-nieces and great-nephews. There were so many of them that Tuppence felt as though she were looking at a realistically produced play of the late Victorian period. "'Tis a grand way you have with children, Mrs. Blenkinsop,' observed Mrs. O'Rourke genially. "'Oh, well,' said Tuppence, "'with my own two, Mrs. O'Rourke cut in quickly. Two. "'It was three boys I understood you had.' Oh, yes, three, but two of them are very near in age, and I was thinking of the days spent with them. Ah, I see. Sit down now, Mrs. Blenkinsop. Make yourself at home. 
Tuppence sat down obediently and wished that Mrs. O'Rourke did not always make her feel so uncomfortable. She felt now exactly like Hansel or Gretel accepting the witch's invitation. Tell me now, said Mrs. O'Rourke, what do you think of Sans Souci? Tuppence began a somewhat gushing speech of eulogy, but Mrs. O'Rourke cut her short without ceremony. What I'd be asking you is if you don't feel there's something odd about the place. Odd? No, I don't think so. Not about Mrs. Perenna? You're interested in her, you must allow. I've seen you watching her and watching her. Tuppence flushed. Well, she's, she's an interesting woman. She is not, then, said Mrs. O'Rourke. She's a commonplace woman enough, that is, if she's what she seems. But perhaps she isn't. Is that your idea? Really, Mrs. O'Rourke, I don't know what you mean. Have you ever stopped to think that many of us are that way, different to what we seem on the surface? Mr. Meadows, now. He's a puzzling kind of man. Sometimes I'd say he was a typical Englishman. Stupid to the core, and there's other times I'll catch a look or a word that's not stupid at all. It's odd, that. Don't you think so? Tuppence said firmly, Oh, I really think Mr. Meadows is very typical. There are others. Perhaps you'll know who I'll be meaning. Tuppence shook her head. The name said Mrs. O'Rourke encouragingly, begins with an S. She nodded her head several times. With a sudden spark of anger and an obscure impulse to spring to the defence of something young and vulnerable, Tuppence said sharply, Sheila's just a rebel. One usually is at that age. Mrs. O'Rourke nodded her head several times, looking just like an obese China Mandarin that Tuppence remembered on her Aunt Gracie's mantelpiece. A vast smile tilted up the corners of her mouth. She said softly, You mayn't know it, but Miss Minton's Christian name is Sophia. Oh, Tuppence was taken aback. Was it Miss Minton you meant? As a matter of fact, it was not, said Mrs. O'Rourke. Tuppence turned away to the window. Queer how this old woman could affect her, spreading about her an atmosphere of unrest and fear. Like a mouse between a cat's paws, thought Tuppence. That's what I feel like. This vast, smiling, monumental old woman, sitting there almost purring. And yet there was the pat-pat of paws playing with something that wasn't, in spite of the purring, to be allowed to get away. Nonsense, all nonsense. I imagine these things, thought Tuppence, staring out of the window into the garden. The rain had stopped. There was a gentle patter of raindrops off the trees. Tuppence thought, it isn't all my fancy. I'm not a fanciful person. There is something, some focus of evil there. If I could see... Her thoughts broke off abruptly. At the bottom of the garden, the bushes parted slightly. In the gap, a face appeared, staring stealthily up at the house. It was the face of the foreign woman, who had stood talking to Carl von Dynam in the road. It was so still, so unblinking in its regard, that it seemed to Tuppence as though it was not human. Staring, staring up at the windows of Sans Souci. It was devoid of expression, and yet there was, yes, undoubtedly there was menace about it. Immobile, implacable. It represented some spirit, some force alien to Sans Souci and the commonplace banality of English guesthouse life. So, Tuppence thought, might jail have looked awaiting to drive the nail through the forehead of sleeping Sisera. 
These thoughts took only a second or two to flash through Tuppence's mind. Turning abruptly from the window, she murmured something to Mrs. O'Rourke, hurried out of the room and ran downstairs and out of the front door. Turning to the right, she ran down the side garden path to where she had seen the face. There was no one there now. Tuppence went through the shrubbery and out onto the road and looked up and down the hill. She could see no one. Where had the woman gone? Vexed, she turned and went back into the grounds of Sans Souci. Could she have imagined the whole thing? No, the woman had been there. Obstinately, she wandered round the garden, peering behind bushes. She got very wet and found no trace of the strange woman. She retraced her steps to the house with a vague feeling of foreboding, a queer, formless dread of something about to happen. She did not guess, would never have guessed, what that something was going to be.